Work is not a burden. Work is not something that we were meant to sit and watch. Work was something that we were meant to do, right? We've been given this opportunity to create things, to engage things, to envision things. And man, it would be such a shame if the reason why you didn't play a part into that role of who you were created to be was because you had this deluded idea that it needed to be perfect. So refuse to be paralyzed, sitting as a spectator because you're falling for the delusion of perfection. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Well, we're now in the middle of a series called Faith at Work, and the entire series is rooted in one very simple thesis statement. Work is not a place for your faith to be concealed. Work is an opportunity for your faith to be revealed. And that's really the case that we made in the introductory episode of this series. We said that it's really important that as a believer, you examine your heart posture towards work because there's a handful of options that are readily available to us. We can view work as obligation. We can view work as transaction. We can view work as opportunity or the claim that we made in that first introductory episode is that something powerful, substantial, and meaningful happens when you start to view work as ministry. And that's really the claim that we're making in that statement. Work is not just a place for your faith to be concealed. Rather, work might be one of the greatest opportunities for your faith to be revealed. Work is an incredible arena in which you can share and display the good news that you deeply believe. And anytime you make that statement, it really starts to raise the question in people's hearts and people's minds, okay, well, how do I reveal my faith in my work? And one of the first kind of impulses that we often have is, oh, I need to start a Bible study in my office, or I need to invite more people to church. And certainly those are not bad options, but that's not going to be the options that we focus on in this series. We're going to look at five ways that your faith can be revealed in your work. And before we jump into the high-level overview of those five ways, I just wanted to give you a little bit of insight into why I chose the ways that I chose. The first thing that I want you to know is that we're only going to go over things that are accessible to anyone right now. I wanted to choose means and manners that we could display or reveal our faith in our work that weren't at all reliant or dependent on our circumstances, on our position on an org chart, or the culture of the organization that we're operating in. And so everything that we go over over the course of this series, I really believe is accessible to anyone right now. These are arenas. These are ways. These are means that, man, you can tap into them regardless of whether you're the CEO or whether you're the intern, regardless of whether things are going well in the business or things aren't going well in the business, regardless of whether you're part of a a culture that's a corporate behemoth that's extremely politically correct or you're part of a scrappy startup where other people are Christians, regardless of your circumstances your position on org chart, or the culture that you're currently operating in, the ways that we're going to talk about revealing your faith as we move through this series are going to be accessible to you right now. The second thing that I want you to know is that for the five ways that we're going to talk about, these are going to be things that are more about individual change than organizational change. And this relates directly to a principle that we say all the time as it relates to healthy business If you want to put your business in order, start by putting yourself in order. 
And so it can be really tempting to engage in a conversation like this and to start to look at all the structures and systems and processes and rhythms that you want to change to make faith more a part of the workplace that you're in. And while that can be tempting, I don't actually think it's the best place to start. I think that the best place to start is with the man or woman that's in the mirror. And and so what we're going to focus on is not how can I change my business? What we're going to focus on is how can I change me? What does God want to do inside me? Because often he wants to do it in you so that he can do it through you. And so it's going to be more about individual change than organizational change. And then the final thing that I just want to give you a heads up on, just as a little bit of a warning as we enter into this series, uh, the five ways that we're going to walk through, I'm a big believer in the fact that they get harder as we go. And here's what I mean by that. The first one that we focus on today, it's certainly not easy, but it is simple in that it's very practical. We're going to have a lot of actions that can come out of today that you can easily apply. And also, I don't think I'm going to present anything today that you're like, I profoundly disagree with that. But as we go, I think it's going to get a little bit more challenging because it's going to require us to think more conceptually. It's going to be things that are more about our heart than are about our hands. And it's going to be about our attitude towards God and his role for our work. And a lot of times that requires more of us. It's one thing to change your actions. It's another thing to submit your will. And so I just want to let you know that as we go down this path, it's probably going to get more challenging. It's not going to be as instantly applicable, and it's also going to be way more demanding. But I will tell you from my experience as someone that is trying to practice walking this path, the further we go, the more worth it it will get. So those are the three things that I want you to know about the five ways that we're going to walk through. Each of these five ways is accessible to anyone now, regardless of circumstance, position, or culture. This is more about individual change than it is about organizational change. And then these are going to get harder as we go. So we shared these with you in the first episode, but let's go ahead and do a high-level overview of the five ways that your faith can be revealed in your work. Number one that we're going to be focused on today is excellence. Number two is countenance. Number three is confidence. Number four is obedience. And number five is dependence. And so today we get to dive into the manner and means in which we can reveal our faith through our work that is excellence. Without a shadow of a doubt, the best person that we could look to as it relates to any of these qualities is the person and life of Jesus Christ. And it's really important to remember that Jesus was a real person. One of the ways that that really came to light for me was when I was sitting on my couch one day and I was just praying and something just hit me that was like, Jesus was 30. (laughs) And at the time I was 29 and I just had this realization like, oh my gosh, like I'm almost 30. And I have friends that are 30 and and I don't relate or think about Jesus the same way that I relate to or think about my friends, right? And and certainly Jesus was fully God and, and we need to have the reverence and respect associated with that. But we also need to remember he was fully man. He was a real guy. And it's important to recognize that when his ministry started, he was 30 years old. And it's at that point that we have the Gospels to share with us everything that he did. But what's interesting is we also know a little bit about what he did before his ministry began at age 30. Do you know what he did? Well, he he was a carpenter. Now, there's not much that's written or cataloged 
about Jesus as a carpenter. And so therefore, we're kind of left to fill in the blanks with regard to what happened between his birth in Nazareth and when his ministry began at age 30. But it's in kind of filling in those blanks that I would say you're kind of safe to make a couple of assumptions. And and here's an assumption that I would make about Jesus the carpenter. My bet is that Jesus the carpenter didn't make shoddy chairs, tables, and benches, right? It just wouldn't really make sense, right? I I just can't conceptualize this world, this arena, where it's like, oh, that's Jesus from Nazareth. He's a carpenter, and he's kind of known for cutting corners or doing poor quality work or not producing his best or kind of cheating the customer. It's almost like funny to think about that. It's like, I just feel like he didn't make shoddy benches. I feel like Jesus's benches that he made it as a carpenter were probably pretty solid. I, I, I feel like whenever you sat in a chair that Jesus made, it was like you could probably depend on that chair to be pretty sturdy. I, I feel like that if Jesus sold a table as a carpenter, you could probably count on the fact that you were getting a pretty good table. Now, why is it that we probably just assume like Jesus probably didn't make bad quality chairs, tables, and benches when he was a carpenter, because there's nothing in the Bible that really tells us about the quality of his carpentry. So why do we just make that assumption? Well, it just kind of makes sense that if you are the son of God, your work should be a representation of your father. That's pretty interesting. And that's also pretty helpful. Here's what I want you to hear. You are a son, you are a daughter of God. Therefore, it makes sense that your work should be a representation of the Father. In the same way that it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to make shoddy chairs, tables, and benches, it wouldn't make any sense for you as a son or daughter of God to do work that represented a lack of quality, a lack of effectiveness, or a lack of service. And so this, in many ways, raises the stakes on what we're doing every single day, and it puts front and center the value and power of what we're talking about here, that excellence really matters whenever it comes to our faith being displayed in our work. And so what I'd like to do today is I'd like to break down this topic of excellence in our work into three actions that we can all apply. Like we said, these are things that are going to be really accessible to you where you are in your role right now. And so we're going to focus on viewing work as worship. We're going to focus on stewarding today's responsibility by doing it right. And then we're going to focus on living as though grace is real. And so as a means of bringing excellence to bear in our work, the first action that we're going to focus on is viewing work as worship. What is worship? Well, it's to honor or show reverence for the divine. And so it's submitting ourselves and pointing our eyes towards something greater, grander, and bigger. And when we start to view our work as worship, what do we know to be true? Well, we know that we don't see work as burden. We see it as blessing. We don't see it as necessity. We see it as opportunity. We don't see it as identity. We see it as service. And that last one is one that I want to highlight. Uh, Your work is not where you go to get your identity. 
right? Your identity is sealed. As a believer, you know that your identity and your value doesn't come from what you do. It comes from who you are. And who are you? Well, we already said it. You are a son or a daughter of the one true king. And so your identity is squared away. It's not like the jury's out on your identity. So so we're not going to work as a means of finding ourselves. We're not going to work as a means for trying to figure out who we are, because we know who we are, and out of knowing whose we are, we also have a pretty firm conviction about who we are. So your identity is squared away. Now, out of the reality and the strength and the confidence that your identity is squared away, it's sealed, it's a done deal, out of that posture, you get to serve. And so certainly we should start to view work as worship because we should be showing up to work saying, this really doesn't have anything to tell anyone about who I am. I am a son or daughter of the one true king. And it's out of that posture that I get to go to work. I get to serve. And then the question becomes, okay, well, what are you serving? And I like Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So this is directly related to what we're talking about with viewing work as worship. We said that our identity is sealed as a son or daughter of the one true king. Out of the overflow of that identity, we get to serve. And the one that we are serving is not human masters. Even if you have a boss, even if that boss has a boss, you're not serving human masters. And so we're not settling for that standard. We are serving the Lord. And therefore, the standard that we care about is not ultimately the standard of our bosses and of their bosses, although those things matter. The standard that we most care about is God's standard. Now, something really cool and powerful happens from a leadership perspective whenever the standard of our boss and the standard of their boss is also submitted to the standard of God. Oh, my gosh. That, that's where you have what I would qualify as an impact-driven organization because we're not building a kingdom, we're building the kingdom. And people are aligned and unified around a common vision for the future that is, uh, I mean, it's not even of this earth, right? It's of something that is greater than this earth. And so we need to remember that our work is not who we are. Our work is where we serve. And who are we serving? Well, ultimately, we're serving Jesus Christ. And how do you serve? Well, you do things really, really, really well. You do things with excellence. And it's important to think about the language that we use around the topic of excellence. Because think about when we see a basketball player or an athlete or a cook or a cellist or even a craftsman do something that you're just like, oh my gosh, it was just so good. It was just, it was just artful. They just, they just did so well with whatever it was that they were doing. What's the word that we often hear used? Well, one of the words that I've often heard used is inspired. Right. And we hear it all the time, especially about athletes and cooks and musicians. We say, oh, my gosh, it was just an inspired performance. What does inspired mean? Well, the etymology of inspired is the spirit breathed into. So that's pretty important to think about. What we're saying whenever we say something was inspired, we're saying it's like it didn't come from inside of that person. It came from outside that person and something external was breathed into the internal and it exploded outward. When we say there was an inspired performance, when we say they just did inspired work, we're saying, man, the spirit breathed into that thing. 
And so what's true for the basketball player, the cook, the cellist, and the craftsman can also be true for the landscaper, the manager, the excavator, the marketer, and the salesperson. What would it look like to perform in an inspired way, to have the spirit breathe into your customer interactions, your sales calls, your team meetings, the workout class that you coach, the negotiations that you're going into, the projects that you're leading, the leadership team that you're trying to organize? What would it look like to not just do that in a way that was adequate or even a way that was decent or even a way that was good by human earthly standards? What would it look like to do that in a way that was inspired? Because here's kind of the fundamental claim that we're making in this point. Quality is part of your testimony. The way you do things reflects the one that you serve and represent. I think about this often practically that anytime I engage with a business owner that their team members are doing a lot of communication with their customers, I've never seen a business owner really kind of see communication, especially email communication from their team members and just be cool with a bunch of typos and a bunch of poor writing and a bunch of like not really polite communication. I've never met a business owner that's okay with that. Why? Because the way that the team member communicates is not just a reflection on the team member, it's a reflection on the leader and it's a reflection on the team. And so recognize that you're part of God's team, right? And he sent you out and boy, you're doing more than sending emails. He's like entrusted you with a lot of responsibility and man, typos or errors or impolite communication or the way you interact with people or your attitude towards other people. That's not just a reflection on you. That's a reflection of the father and it's a reflection of the team. And so quality is part of your testimony. Let's think about one other phrase that we use with regard to someone that's really excellent at what they do. We often say, wow, they poured their heart into that. And this connects to everything we talked about in that introductory episode, which if you haven't uh, listened to that episode yet, I think that's going to be a really powerful foundational episode that's really going to have threads throughout all of the five ways that we walk through in this series. So make sure you go back and listen to it. But we we really highlighted that verse, Proverbs 4.23. We said, guard your heart above all else, for out of it flows everything you do. And we said that heart in Western culture often means your emotions. But in the time that the Bible was written, the heart actually meant so much more than that. And certainly the Hebrew word for heart meant so much more than that. It meant like the core of your being. It meant every part of who you are. It was your will, your soul, your emotions, and your intellect. And so now looking at the word heart through that context, think about that phrase that we use whenever we say people did that work really well. We say they poured their heart into it. So you can't just look at work as a transaction or as an obligation and pour your heart into it because then all of your work will look like a transaction or an obligation. But if your heart towards work is that it is worship, is that it is ministry, well, then when you pour your heart into it, the results will not be merely a necessity or even a transaction. The results or the outcomes of what you're pouring in will be worship. It will be beauty. It will be excellence. Now, there's one more thing that I I really felt personally was important to qualify on this idea of viewing work as worship. There is a big, necessary, important distinction between viewing work as worship and worshiping work. And 
it can be very easy, especially if you are someone that runs or owns a business to flirt with the line of, man, this work used to be worship. Now I'm worshiping the work. We worship the creator, not the thing that he created. God created work and work should always be submitted to the one that created it. And so it's really important that although we do hold up excellence as a value and a virtue and something that's good and right and beautiful and true, we never worship the excellence. We never worship the work. We worship the one that created the work. And so before we move on from this topic of viewing work as worship, I just want to remind you there's a difference between looking at your work as an opportunity to worship the creator and worshiping work itself. And it's really important that you do the deep heart work necessary to get that right, but then you also stay vigilant to make sure it never crosses the line. The first area that we focused on for bringing excellence to bear in our work as a means of revealing our faith in our work was viewing work as worship. The second area that I want us to focus on, or the second action that I want us to focus on, is stewarding today's responsibility by doing it right. It was when I was in college that uh, there was a guy that would come to campus every single year, and he would debate students, professors, really anyone on campus that wanted to talk to him on the merits of Christianity. And it was in that arena that I was first kind of introduced to Christian apologetics and kind of became just enthralled with it. It was so thrilling to recognize that, oh, Christianity is not something where you have to check your intellect at the door. Rather, Christianity is something that if intellect was God created, we should be bringing that to bear in our faith and in the way we communicate about our faith logically and practically. And so this is where I saw this play out. And one of the first arguments that I almost immediately as a college student latched onto was one that this guy made pretty regularly with just about anyone he talked to. He said, do you think that good, true, right, and beautiful are real? And and I would ask you that question. Do you think that good, true, right, and beautiful are real things? Or do you think that they're made up things? Like when we say that's true, or that's the truth, is that a made up thing? Is that just something we concocted? Or is that like something that's real? Or when we say something is good, Like, like, is that just relative to someone's opinion of what good is? Can we all just decide what good is for us? And so does that mean that, man, Hitler, like he thought what he was doing was good. So was he right? Or do we think that there are actually objective value-based standards for good and true and right and beautiful? Is it something that we all get to decide for ourselves and we all get to choose our own adventure of the moral constructs that we live with? Or are we actually operating in a system and in a structure that was predefined? And so that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that like, oh no, I believe that good and bad, true and false, right and wrong, beautiful and ugly are real things. Like it's not just some concoction. It's not pond scum evolved to a higher order. And then somehow we just all agreed on there's certain things that are good, right, beautiful, and true. So those came from somewhere. And then we all have to do the intellectual work of saying, okay, where exactly did those come from? Well, I believe they came from the creator, right? That God established a universe in which good and right and beautiful and true were real objective things. 
Now, looking through that lens, it's interesting to think about the action that we're talking about. Steward today's responsibility by doing it right. So let's first look at today's responsibility. What are the things that you are uniquely and distinctly responsible for today? First, think about your role at work. What are the responsibilities that you have in front of you today? I mean, we can make this really practical. Within Path for Growth, we call these success statements, right? The three to five areas that you need to be winning in order to be successful in your role. And hopefully you've got those for you. What are the categories of work for you and your team members that it's like, this is what the person in this job does. This is what I've been entrusted with. What are the areas that you need to be responsible for today? If you own or run a business, I'll tell you, like the vision of the organization, the, the culture of the team, the results that matter most in this season, the people's development on your team, the service of the customer, right? All these things are things that you are uniquely responsible for today. Okay, so, so those are your responsibilities today if you own or run a business, Now, you steward today's responsibilities by doing it right. So we said that good and right and beautiful and true are real things. They're not just made up relativistic opinions. They are like real, actual, tangible things. It's objective. There's a right way to do something. So something powerful happens whenever you say, okay, I've got my list of responsibilities, vision for the organization, development of the team, the results that matter most in this season, the culture of the organization, right? These are the things that have been entrusted to me in this season. What does it look like to do them right? Not just what does it look like to do them, Not like, what does it look like to get by? What does it look like to do these things in such a way that I could say that was the right way to do them? That was good and true and right and beautiful. This is really what it means to be a good steward. And let's break it down and make it a little bit more practical. What do good stewards do? Well, number one, they focus more on service than on scale. This is directly related to the idea of healthy growth for business, but I also think it goes so much more beyond that. Uh, I was once part of a team that it kind of became a little bit of a cultural thing that anytime anyone came up with an idea of something we could do to improve the customer experience, it would almost always get shot down by someone in the meeting room because they'd say, that doesn't scale, or how does that scale? And it was like this thing where it's like, man, we'd have ideas on how to improve the product or how to improve the service or how to to make better the way we were doing what we were doing. And almost immediately, people would just shoot it down because they'd say, how does that scale? That doesn't scale. And that all changed one day. I'll never forget this moment. It taught me a principle that I'm just so grateful for. There was a new leader that came to the meeting. And almost immediately, I think he picked up on the fact that that was kind of the dialogue that would always happen. People would present ideas for improvement, for betterment, for serving the customer. And almost immediately, someone would say, how does that scale? That doesn't scale. And at at one point in the meeting, he said, just stop. He said, focus on doing it right. Focus on serving people. Get that correct. And then we can ask the question, how does it scale? But he said, the last thing we want to scale is mediocrity. Oh my gosh, so good. And so focus on doing it right. Focus on serving people where you are right now. And then you can worry about scaling it. But don't scale mediocrity. Why would we ever want to do that? Why would we say, okay, well, we're going to do this mediocre so that we can make it mediocre and big. 
That is such a ludicrous frame of thinking, but I will tell you that is like rampant in the marketplace right now. So what do good stewards do? They focus more on service than on scale. And what's wild is that when you focus on serving people better, they will demand that you get bigger. So we're gonna focus more on service than on scale. Next, we're gonna savor small. I love that idea of savor because you just think of a good meal or you think of uh, something that you're going to savor, right? If you have uh, like a small scoop of ice cream and you just want to savor it, you want to enjoy it, well, then, then you're going to spend some time on it, right? You're going to make sure you taste every single flavor. You're going to make sure that you really are present with the moment. So often we don't savor the things that are small. And this actually connects to a Jordan Peterson principle uh, that I heard recently that I just think is so poignantly worded. He said, nothing small done right is really small. Think about that for a second. Nothing small done right is really small because there's something big about doing things right. That's because there's something right about doing things right. And so look at the small things that you've been entrusted with right now. Look at the team that you've been entrusted with. Look at the finances you've been entrusted with. Look at the customers you've been entrusted with. Savor those. Those are an incredible opportunity to do things right, right now. To not wait till it's big for it to be done right, but rather to say, I'm going to do this right, right now, regardless of size, because Nothing small done right is actually small. What else do good stewards do? Well, they do their best. But then here's what they also know is they know that the best that they can do is the best that they can do. But think about that for a second. Like that's a pretty high standard. Like the best that you can do, the best that you can do in that customer interaction, the best that you can do on that sales call, the best that you can do in that team meeting, the best that you can do recording that podcast, Alex, the best that you can do in leading the group that you're leading right now, the best that you can do on that project, good stewards do their best. And that's like no small thing because that's like a pretty radical standard, right? It says that I'm not just gonna settle for what's good in the eyes of others or what's good in the eyes of this world or what will get me the paycheck. I'm going to do my best. And so that's a pretty high standard that stewards are committed to. They're investing the resources they have in the present to create a maximal return in the future. And then finally, what do good stewards do? They don't wait for tomorrow to prioritize what matters. It's uh, just absolutely so sad that too many people fall for the lie that I need to work like crazy so that I can then focus on what matters. No, <laughs> it is so backwards, it's not even funny. You need to focus on what matters so that you have the ability to work like crazy. What matters? Well, let's break it down to as simple as Jesus broke it down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Today, now, that matters. And love your neighbor as yourself. Today, now, that matters. We focus on what matters now. We do not wait to love God or love people. We don't say when it's more convenient. We don't say whenever I have more time in my mornings. We don't say when circumstantially things change. No, we, we love God and love people now. And out of that posture, we get to work like crazy because then we're working from a state of overflow instead of from a state of depletion. So let's review that list real quick. 
What do good stewards do? They focus more on service than scale. They savor small. They do their best. And they don't wait for tomorrow to prioritize what matters. And I think this really all relates to what Jesus said in Luke 16.10. He said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And so what is the principle embedded in that? Your standard today will cascade into tomorrow. You can't say, I'm going to do shoddy work today, and that'll buy me the ability to do excellence tomorrow. Because you're building on something, right? Tomorrow is not operating in isolation from what you do today right now. And so you are moving in a direction with regard to the way you invest your time, energy, talent, and effort today. Which direction are you moving? Because your standard today will cascade into tomorrow. It's a little bit of a different arena, but I think it's such a poignant example. I was once sitting down with someone that I just really look up to as being an example of wealth managed properly, wealth stewarded properly. It was a married couple and they're just, they're incredibly wealthy. But what's so neat is they're uh, some of the most down to earth, wildly wealthy people that I know. And they're some of the most generous people that I know. And I, I asked them, I said, like, what gives you the ability to be so generous? Like, how are you able to just give so much money, so much energy, so much time? You just pour yourself out in service of other people. And in many ways, you're like pillars of your community. Like, your community is just so grateful for the way that you've invested. And I look at those people and I say, that's an impact-driven leader. I mean, they are just so generous. It's unbelievable. And I was trying to get to the crux of like, how are they able to do this? And I'll never forget, uh, it was the wife, she looked at me and she said, Alex, we've actually talked about that a lot because we've kind of asked ourselves the same question, like, how are we able to do this? And she said, the thing that we always come to is, thank God we gave when we were poor. Hmm. She said, because if we didn't establish the standard that we give regardless of what we make, she said, if we didn't have that standard already in place, we wouldn't have had the stomach to be able to write the kind of numbers on checks that we write today. Oh my gosh, that's a powerful idea. And it connects directly to the principle we're talking about here. Your standard today will cascade into tomorrow. And so it's not like, oh, I wasn't generous when I was poor, but then I became wealthy and I became generous. No, she said, like, we were generous when we were poor. We just didn't have as much to give. But that gave us the ability to be generous whenever we were wealthy. But here's what's interesting. So Luke 16.10, we already read it, said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. But what does Luke 16, 11 say? And I've never actually looked at this through this lens until I was studying for this episode. It says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? <laughs> we could spend hours upon hours with that single question. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, 
who will trust you with true riches? So let's just look at a couple things in here. It's so funny how in one sentence, Jesus basically says, worldly wealth is not true riches. Like that's not even true, right? It may be a good thing, but it's certainly not the best thing. But here's the principle that's being alluded to in that verse. We said that your standard today will cascade into tomorrow, but then he even ups the ante from there in Luke 16, 11, he says, your standard today will cascade into eternity. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? The true riches that he's referring to there are the riches associated with the kingdom of God, the blessedness of living in communion with your creator. And man, if we can't be trusted to manage this stuff, how on earth could we be trusted to manage that stuff? Steward today's responsibility by doing it right. Okay, let's go to the third action. The third action associated with excellence being alive and well in your work as a means of showing your faith is living as though grace is real. So we said that the way that we're talking about right now is excellence. Now notice that we're talking about excellence in your work. We said that excellence or quality is an incredible opportunity for you to share about your testimony, right? That something about the way you do things reflects the one that you serve. There's a reason why it's called excellence and it's not called perfection. We're not saying we're applying ourselves to a standard of perfection as a means of glorifying God, because if it was perfection, we wouldn't be people that are pointing to God. We would be people that would be trying to be God. And that's, I mean, like a really important thing to realize that anytime I set out to make something perfect, I'm trying to play God. We need to stop trying to play God and we need to start trying to point to God. Our excellence is never going to be perfect, and that's kind of the point. But our excellence can be a glimmer of the one who is perfect. And so uh, I think it was actually Jamie Foxx that once said that uh, perfectionism isn't healthy. It's not something I strive for. Perfectionism is God's job. Excellence is what I strive for. And that's a kind of random that it came from Jamie Foxx, but also kind of helpful, right? It's like, stop striving per for perfection because anytime I'm deluded by perfectionism, I'm actually probably deluded by pride because for me to strive for perfection means that I have to believe that it could be possible. And it's not. There's going to be things that are imperfect, infallible, and mistaken about the way that I do things because I am a fallen human being that lives in a fallen world. And so I'm not striving for perfection. I'm not trying to be mistake-free. I'm not trying to say that the best I've got is the best there ever could be because that doesn't exist. That's me trying to play God. And so what, where this really plays out, especially with entrepreneurs, is that we often avoid doing good things for the fear that good might not be good enough. I want to say that again because I think that this might be hitting home with someone. Do you often avoid doing good things for the fear that good might not be good enough? And I just want to let you breathe a little bit and let you know that there will be times where it's not good enough. And that can be an incredible opportunity for your testimony as well. 
This is what's so cool about the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that when we do excellent and good things, we say, man, that excellent good work isn't about me. It's about the one that created me. And we get to point to the Heavenly Father. But when we fall short, when we make a mistake, when we're imperfect, when we don't live up to the standard that we said we wanted to live up to, well, then we get to point to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so to ever say, I'm not going to even try because it might not be good enough is living as though grace isn't actually real. Because there's going to be times where it's not good enough. Thank God for grace. Thank God for Jesus. And so what does it look like to live as though grace is real? Let's break it down into five practices. Number one, refuse to be paralyzed by a standard of perfection. Do not be someone that sits on the sidelines for their entire life because they can't ever get in the game for fear that they might not be perfect. You weren't created to be a spectator. You were created to be an active participant. You were created to move. You were created to take action. You were created to work, to point back at that introductory episode. Work is not a burden. Work is not something that we were meant to sit and watch. Work was something that we were meant to do, right? We've been given this opportunity to subdue things, to create things, to engage things, to envision things. And man, it would be such a shame if the reason why you didn't play a part into that role of who you were created to be was because you had this deluded idea that it needed to be perfect. So refuse to be paralyzed, sitting as a spectator because you're falling for the delusion of perfection. What do you need to do? Number two, do your best. And we already talked about that. That's like no small thing, right? Because doing your best demands that you be outrageously, ridiculously present with the work that you're in right now. And even requires you to ask the question, what is best? And so we want to do our best all the time. We want to be engaging in this upward, elevating motion that we're doing inspired work, that we're doing excellent work, that we're never settling for adequacy or decent or the standards of this world, but rather we remember we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to refuse to be paralyzed by a standard of perfection. We're going to do our best. Then we're going to remember two things. The best you can do is the best you can do. (laughs) right? It's wild how simple that is and how kind of stupid that sounds, but how much I need to be reminded of that. Listen to me. The best you can do is the best you can do. And so that's important to recognize. That's important to realize. The best you can do is the best you can do. Write that on a post-it note and put it on your computer screen because that's something you need to remember. The best you can do is the best you can do. But here's the second thing you need to remember that a lot of times culture will not tell you. There are times when your best isn't enough. And that kind of sucks. It sucks to have to say that, right? There are times when my best just isn't enough. Whenever I I still can't make things right. Whenever customers will still be mad at me. Whenever team members will still be hurt whenever the product still won't be everything it could have been, there are times when the best still isn't enough. And this is something that, quite frankly, we just don't talk about all that much. But in not talking about it, it, it's such a shame because we sacrifice our awareness and our acknowledgement of our need for grace. The best I can do is the best I can do. And there are times when the best I can do isn't enough. Thank God for grace. And so, What do we do 
in those times whenever our best isn't enough? Well, I'll tell you, there's definitely something to the idea that when you achieve things, whenever you win things, whenever you do things good, right, beautiful, and true, man, there's so much woven into that that can be used as testimony to how great God is. But man, there's just as much testimonial richness in you owning and confessing when things aren't good, right, beautiful, and true, and saying how good Jesus is. When you say, man, I own the fact that I made a mistake. I own the fact that I didn't act right there. I own the fact that I spoke out of turn there. I own the fact that I was selfish. I own the fact that I was prideful. Because in the business lingo, we use the word own, right? We talk about extreme ownership. What we're really talking about here is an old school word called confession, right? We're saying that, man, I may have been trying my best, or I may not have even been trying my best. I may have conceptually been wanting to do my best, but I didn't do my best in that moment, and I own that. Or there will be times when, man, I tried to do my best, and that wasn't enough. Or this is just a fallen situation. It's a messy situation. And I have zero doubt that there's things that I did that contributed to the mess that we are currently in. You're going to own that. You're going to confess that, because in the process of confessing that, you are testifying to the saving power and grace of Jesus Christ. We're going to refuse to be paralyzed by a standard of perfection. We're going to do our best. We're going to remember that the best we can do is the best we can do, and there are times when our best isn't enough. We're going to own or confess our imperfection, and then we're going to repent. Repentance is also a word that's not talked about much in the marketplace, but it's something that, man, I just think it's good business practice. You own it, you confess it, and then what does repentance mean? Well, the Hebrew word is teshuva. What does that mean? It means to turn around 180 degrees. It means whatever you have to do, you ruthlessly and relentlessly root that imperfection out of your heart, out of your spirit. You say, that's not who I am. That's something I did. And we are now moving in a new direction. Repentance is to turn around 180 degrees. And the reason why you can do that is because it is for freedom that you have been set free. And sin is a horrible master. It enslaves you. But whenever we own it, whenever we confess it, whenever we say grace is real, then we turn around, then we repent, and then we move forward in the freedom of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. It's it's the powerful thing about the crucifixion that, yes, something powerful happens whenever we talk about God in light of our victories. Something even more powerful happens whenever we talk about God in light of our failures, because it shows that we believe in resurrection power. So let's review the three actions that we can take part in today that are immediately accessible to us today for using excellence as a means of bringing our faith to bear in our work. We're going to view work as a worship. It's not burden, it's blessing, it's not necessity, it's opportunity, it's not identity, it's service. We're going to steward today's responsibility by doing it right, because we think that right and good and true and beautiful are real things. And so we're going to have the guts to say, what is right with regard to the responsibilities that I've been given today? And we're not going to allow our plans for tomorrow to keep us from stewarding today. And then finally, we're going to live as though grace is real because we're doing our best, but there's times where our best isn't enough. And we're going to own our imperfection as a means of pointing people's eyes to the grace of Jesus Christ. 
I think it would be appropriate to end each of these actions associated with bringing our faith to bear in our work with a prayer. And so I wanted to read the prayer that I have for all of us today as it relates to excellence in work. God, give us vision, wisdom, and passion for the ministry of excellence. I pray that your nature would be expressed in the way that we attend to the responsibilities you've blessed us with today. Mold us into men and women that value quality. I pray that the work of our hands, words, and minds would reflect your goodness. I pray that our colleagues, our customers, and our community would be so inspired by our excellence that they couldn't help but think about your goodness. Give us the heart we need to serve well today. Amen. Y'all, if you can't tell, I'm just so excited about this series. I'm grateful to you for being on this journey with us because I think that God is going to do powerful things through the way that we each adopt these concepts and work to put them into practice in our hearts and in our workplaces. If you are interested in receiving more content that's like this content, I send out an email every single Wednesday called Worth It Wednesday. I think most email isn't worth it. It's not worth your time or worth your energy. And so this is where I try to pour out my best in terms of my writing into one email that actually is worth it. And so we're going to send you every single Wednesday a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. You can read the email in under two minutes. We also send a video where we try to elaborate more on the principles that are at play and how they can be practiced in your work and in your life. So if you want to get on the email list, you can click the link that's in the show notes at this episode or sign up at pathforgood.com. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.